Our scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 2. Follow along in your Bibles or on the screen in the front. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there, staying in Jerusalem, were God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. My father made his living playing the violin. His father also was a professional violinist. His mother was an opera singer. My dad's sister is a teacher. Uh, His two brothers, one is a doctor, one is a computer scientist. My mother has made her living over the years as a computer scientist and most recently as a nurse. Her mom uh, was a high school principal. Her dad was an insurance salesman. Her sister just recently retired from a life of public service She served on the city council for the city of Denver. She was in the Colorado legislature for many years. My brother uh, is a doctor. My sister works for Verizon. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Uh, It's because one of the things that I've realized is that as I look at my family tree, I look at the people in my family, I can't find one person in my family in any recent history that has made their living as a farmer. Uh, I I suspect that it might be the same for you. How many farmers do you have in your family? Maybe some, maybe a few. When was the last time you went out and put in a hard day's labor in the fields? I I suspect not many of us, but the the reality is, is that that's not the way it has been for most of human history. Most cultures, most societies have been agricultural societies and The biblical times were no different. The people of Israel were an agricultural society, agricultural culture. And and, and what that meant is that their entire lives revolved around the agricultural 
calendar. And, and so they, they had feasts that celebrated, that, were, that, were, that revolved around the agricultural calendar, and they, they had three main feasts. The first feast was the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the first of the main feasts. And, and this was a feast that celebrated the first fruits of the barley harvest. And it was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread because they would, uh, what they would do is, is they, would, they, would, uh, they would make bread with the first fruits of, of the harvest, um, but they wouldn't use any leaven because the leaven um, would have come from last year's harvest that would have been from that, and they didn't want to use that because they wanted to, to, to represent the newness of the beginning of a new season. So they wouldn't use the old, old leaven. So it was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was the, the first feast. And then, um, well, 50 days later, uh, seven weeks later, they had the Feast of Weeks. Feast of Weeks because it was seven weeks after the first feast. And this was a celebration uh, of, the, of the wheat harvest. And uh, so, of course, it revolved around uh, the, the, the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And, and then, then there was the third feast. And that was in the seventh month, it was the Feast of Ingathering. And the Feast of Ingathering was sort of a, a celebration of you know, all of the harvest and all, all of the crops, but uh, with a special focus on the, uh, the, new, the new crops, the fruits and olives, right? That was a big part of the Feast of Ingathering. So they had these, these three feasts, and year after year, they would celebrate them over and over and over and over again. Uh, last week, we showed a clip from uh, Sesame Street a little clip, little skit called Waiting for Elmo. And it's a takeoff on the 20th century play by Samuel Beckett called Waiting for Godot. And Waiting for Godot is a play that, that suggests that life is just filled with meaningless repetition. Uh, that we just do the same things over and over and over again. So Waiting for Godot uh, is a story, is a play where the, the actors, uh, the characters, they just do the same things over and over and over again, and the plot doesn't ever really go anywhere, and, and, and so Samuel Beckett's voice sort of suggesting that that's what life is like. And I, we talked about last week, many of us can resonate with that, can't we? That it, sometimes it just seems like we're just doing the same things over and over and over again. And you, go to, you go to work, and, and you, you get stuck in traffic, and it's the same traffic you got stuck in yesterday. And you, you go and you have a meeting with your, your boss, and it's like you had the same conversation yesterday, and, and then you come home, and you get in an argument with your spouse, and, and it's the same argument that you had yesterday and the day before that, and it's just sort of the same thing over and over and over and over again, and we might suspect that the, the people of Israel, that they would have seen it the same way, right, because that's what's going on, right, it's the same, these three feasts over and over and over again, right, their lives, right, you, you plant, you water, you harvest, you plant, you water, you harvest, first the barley, then the wheat, then the olives. The barley, then the wheat, then the olives. The barley, the wheat, and the olives. Say it with me. The barley, the wheat, and the olives. It's the same thing over and over and over again. And what's the point? Is there any meaning in all of this? And you might suspect that they would think that way. And, well, and actually they did. We, we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes, and we see that, that Solomon talks about this. this is meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. We just do the same thing over and over and over and over again. But we saw that the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, you see, that's where it, it, it 
turns away from waiting for Godot. The first part of Ecclesiastes just sounds like waiting for Godot over and over and over again. But at the end of Ecclesiastes, we saw, that, we saw that there's a turn, there's a twist. And that turn and that twist points us to a difference in the Israelite worldview that was significantly different than any of the other peoples around them. Because what the people of Israel understood is that, yeah, there, there's meaningless repetition that goes over and over and over again. But here's what they also saw, and this is what separated them from virtually every other culture around them, and that's this. They saw that God had acted, and God would act again. They saw that God had acted, and that God would act again. They saw that, that their... The, the, the repetition of the things that they were doing over and over and over again were actually part of a bigger, a larger narrative that was going somewhere. God had acted, and he acted in a definitive way, in ways that that made things never the same again. Not just like he acted in the sense that he made the rain come, and he made the sun come. You know, not, not just that, but that he acted in ways that changed things forever, that God acted, and he would act again. Because you see, the people of Israel, they... They, they knew that, that actually they hadn't always been uh, planting and watering and harvesting. It hadn't always been barley and wheat and olives. They had spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. They had spent 400 years being used by the, the rulers of Egypt to, to some of the largest cities in the Egyptian empire were, were built on the backs of Israelite slave labor they had worked in the fields there too, but when they would plant and water and harvest, well, the crop, they didn't get to, to reap the benefits of their harvest because it was taken from them. They, they remembered that, but they, what they remembered was that God had acted. God had acted. God had, had come and He'd raised up Moses and, and Moses delivered them from their Egyptian slavery And so their feasts had a secondary meaning. You see, their feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Feast of Weeks and the Feast of, uh, the the final Feast of Ingathering, the the feasts that they had, they weren't actually all that original. A lot of cultures in their day had similar kinds of feasts, right? But but their feasts had this secondary meaning that separated them from all the other cultures. And that, for example, the Feast of Unleavened Bread wasn't just about uh, the newness of the harvest season, it reminded them of how God had come and had delivered them from Egypt. He had called them out, and he called them out to move quickly, right? No time for the, for the leaven. No time for, for the, it to rise. You've got to get out of there. And so unleavened bread, it had this, this new meaning. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover became connected because God had acted. And then they come out, and you find in Exodus chapter 19, they come out of Egypt, and they come to Mount Sinai, and they actually come to Mount Sinai on the first day of the third month, which is rather curious, because this is actually when the next feast, the Feast of Weeks, would be celebrated. And so the Feast of Weeks, the wheat harvest, became not just a celebration of the first fruits of the wheat harvest, it became, especially in the first and second centuries before the coming of Christ, it increasingly became a feast that also celebrated the giving of the law. That Moses had, had, had gone up and had ascended 
the Mount Sinai and ascended into the heavenly cloud upon Mount Sinai, and God had given them the, the law. And actually, the, the third feast, which isn't as pertinent to what we're going to talk about today, that the third feast, the, the Feast of Ingathering, also became known as the Feast of Booths. And it became a time in which they celebrated, they, they put up these sort of makeshift uh, little uh, places to, to live um, as a way of, of reminding themselves of when they had wandered through the desert and God had provided for them, right? So, so all of these feasts, they had this secondary meaning because what they understood is that God had acted and that God would act again. And they increasingly knew that God needed to act again. Because what they realized is that, yes, though God had delivered them from Egypt, uh, there was still a problem. Uh, They came to realize they'd been delivered from Egypt, but they realized that there were other challenges, other difficulties. They came to realize that actually, that increasingly they came to see that there was a bigger issue. bigger issue was not just other peoples who would come and, and, and make things messy for them. That was a big part of it. But also, some of them, some of the prophets began to see there's a deeper issue here, and that's the issue of sin and death itself that they needed deliverance from. Not just from foreign armies, but from sin and from death itself they needed deliverance from. And secondly, they, they, they also came to see that, that the giving of the law, though God had given them the law, and that was a wonderful thing, the law was given to them as a way to lead to life. Throughout the, the Old Testament, it talks about Follow my commands, it leads to life. Follow my commands, it leads to life. Follow my commands, it leads to life. But they came to realize, they came to realize that, that they weren't able to follow it. Well, what good is this if I can't actually follow it? And, and so then the, the, the prophets started to, to dream of this day when God would come and he would send his spirit upon them and God would write the law on their hearts. Let me just read to you one passage from from Ezekiel, there's a number of different passages in the Old Testament that talk about this, but, but in Ezekiel it says this, uh, through Ezekiel, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So they look for this day when when, when God would come and deliver them, not just from their foreign, foreign oppressors, but from sin and death itself. And they looked forward to this day when God would send his spirit and actually enable them to keep his law. Of course, this is where we come to the very heart of the gospel. This is where we come to the very heart of Christianity, is that in Jesus Christ, God has come to fulfill this. And so actually what we find is that these feasts, these, especially these first two feasts, take on this third meaning, right? Uh, the, 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 the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's not just about the first fruits of the harvest, it's not just uh, about them being delivered from Egypt, but that Jesus is the Passover Lamb. The final sacrifice, that, 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 that when you put your trust in Him, then sin and death passes over you, and you're able to enter into the newness of life. And they also saw that the, 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 sec, well, the second feast, the Feast of Weeks, which came 50 days after Passover, the Greek word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the word from which we get Pentecost, Penta 50. And they looked forward to this day when the Spirit would come upon God's people and write His law on their hearts. 
That's the context in which we come to our passage today. We see these, these parallels that just as Moses at this time, time of Pentecost, as he ascended Mount Sinai into the heavenly cloud that was on Mount Sinai, Jesus, the truer and better Moses, ascends into heaven. And just as the people wait for Moses to come down with the law, we saw last week the, the, the early church, they sat and waited for Christ to come, for the Spirit to come. And then what do we have right here? Instead of Moses coming down with the law, we have the Spirit coming down upon His people. And that context is really important, right? Because again, what have we seen? That the purpose of the Spirit is to write the law on God's people. To write it on our hearts. The question is, what happens? What happens when the law of God is written on our hearts? What happens when God takes the commands of God and writes them on our hearts? Two things happen that we see in this passage. When the Spirit of God is written on our hearts, it leads to worship and it leads to mission. It leads to worship and it leads to mission. When the law of God is working on our heart, written on our hearts, first of all, it leads to worship. That's what's going on in here. They, we, we get distracted by, oh, they're speaking in languages and all this kind of stuff, and I'll get to that. But we kind of miss, well, what are they actually saying? What are they doing? in all these languages, and we find it here in verse 11. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. What are they doing? They're declaring the wonders of God. They're they're praising God. You see, the purpose of the law, the reason that Moses gave us the law, the whole reason for that was that it might lead us to worship God. That's our purpose. That's our whole goal. You go to the book of Revelation and and you see a glimpse of heaven. You see a glimpse of the way things are supposed to be. And what do you see? It's this picture of them standing around praising and worshiping God because that's what we were made to do. When God writes His law in our hearts, it leads us to worship. But there's something important to notice here that that if, if, if the Spirit is writing the law in our hearts, then worship has got to be about more than just singing and praising. It's got to be about more than that. Of course, that's the, what we find in the Bible is that there's, you might see there's two ways of understanding worship. There's worship in the narrow, worship in the narrow, which is something like this. And we got together and we praise God, we worship Him. But there's also worship in the broad in which your entire life is given as an offering of worship. What's interesting is that in the book of Romans, uh, Paul kind of almost retells the story of Israel, but in the light of the gospel. And so in Romans chapter 7, uh, you have him talking about how we have the law, but we can't keep it. We have the law. God's given us the law. This is wonderful. I delight in the law, but I can't do it. I can't follow it. And then in Romans 8, Romans 8, well, what is Romans 8? It's really like a a theological exposition of Pentecost because he talks about that, well, when the Spirit comes down, it begins to work in you, and, and not perfectly, right? Not perfectly, but it begins to work in you and enable you more and more to to keep the law, right? And then Romans uh, 9 through 11, now he's got to talk about, okay, who, who really are the true people of God? And what he ends up saying is who, who, the people of God are not marked out by simply being of a certain ethnicity. 
the people of God. It's, it's, it's about having the Spirit of God written on it. That's what 9 through 11 is, is really all about. And then Romans 12, he comes back, and it's like, okay, uh, what happens when the Spirit is written, writes the law in your heart? And Romans 12, 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy there, he's basically saying, in view of all that I've just said in Romans 1 through 11, in light of the gospel, in light of the coming of the Spirit, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, that this might be your spiritual act of worship. Spirit writes on our hearts, and we worship with our lives. And then he goes on, and, and he kind of almost expounds the Ten Commandments. Not really, but he kind of talks about what does this look like. And it's about, it's about unity and harmony and, and, and loving your enemies and loving, right? And so, so we see that when the Spirit of God writes on our hearts, it leads to worship in the narrow, but it also leads to an entire life of worship. What happens when the, the Spirit writes the law of God on our hearts? It leads to worship, and it leads to mission. Right, isn't this interesting? The Spirit comes upon them, and, and they don't just start praising God. They start praising God in other languages, in the languages of the people that are around them. Right, what we see right here at Pentecost that, that, that worship and mission, you see, we often separate them, don't we? Worship and mission are two different things. Like, you, you know, you've got your worship committee in your church, and you've got your mission committee, right? And they're separate things. Like, oh, look, you stick to worship, and I'll stick to mission, right? We, we pull these apart, but we see right here. And actually, they're they're one and the same, that that spirit-led worship is always missional. Spirit-led worship is always missional. And we're continuing this series, which we're calling Living as Missionaries. What does it mean for each and every one of us to be a missionary? And here we see that genuine worship, spirit-led worship, when the Spirit writes the law of God on our hearts... It leads to worship, but it leads to worship in a way that is missional. And I think we see in this text three ways. Three ways in which worship leads to mission. We see that spirit-led worship connects with outsiders. Spirit-led worship amazes and perplexes outsiders. Spirit-led worship gathers outsiders in. First of all, spirit-led worship connects with outsiders. Again, what do they start doing? They, they, they start speaking foreign languages. They start speaking the languages of the people around them. And we'll come to the supernatural dimension of this here in a minute, but, but I think that's interesting because we need, we need to ask ourselves, are there ways in which God might be leading us to reach out to those who speak a different language than us. I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe, you know, maybe I'm going to wake up one morning and I'll be able to speak Spanish. Right? I mean, I, I took three years of Spanish in college, and all I can remember to do is how to ask where the bathroom is. Right? But who knows? It could happen, right? I mean, that might happen. But, you know, some of you, you already speak another language. You already speak different languages. And is it possible, is it possible that God might want to use that for you to declare the glories of God to, to, to peoples in our area who speak a different language. I could foresee a day, I could foresee a time when, when we launch a missional community group that is specifically for people who maybe speak a different language. Because it connects. 
missional worship, spirit-led worship connects with those on the outside, literally speaking the language of people on the outside. Now, we can take that literally. We can also take it more metaphorically. We're going to see throughout the book of Acts, there's also a metaphorical interpretation to that, and that is that, and that, is that you speak the language of the people, right? We speak to, whether it's the, the musical language of the people. One of the things that we tried to do here, right, is that, the, the truth is, you know, I'll bet you if I looked at uh, most people in our culture, looked at what's on their playlist, there's more music with guitars in it than with organ in it. It's just my guess. And so we've decided we, we want to speak the musical language of our culture and try to connect, right? We, we, we want to try to speak, and I always try to think, how would somebody outside the church connect with what I'm saying, right? We're, we're still, the purpose here is still to worship. That's what we're here to do, but, but is there a way to do this that might connect with those on the outside? When we, when we talk about Christianity and the gospel, are we explaining it in ways that those on the outside might be able to connect with? Because we're going to discover that's, that's what Peter and Paul do throughout the book of Acts. They change how they talk about the gospel. When they're talking to Jews who really believe in the Bible, well, then they just hammer the Bible. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. But when they're talking in Athens, where they don't really care what the Bible says, he doesn't even mention it. And he approaches the preaching of the gospel from a different angle. He actually quotes their own poets and helps to connect them with where they are. You see, missional worship, missional worship connects, spirit-led worship connects with those on the outside. Spirit-led worship connects with those on the outside. Secondly, spirit-led worship amazes and perplexes those on the outside. What does it say here in verse 12? Amazed and perplexed. They ask one another, what does this mean? Spirit-led worship amazes and perplexes. And of course, in this particular instance, how does it amaze and perplex them? They start speaking languages that they don't normally speak. Again, if I started speaking, you know, Spanish or French or whatever, you'd, you'd be pretty amazed. Like, what on earth just happened with Kevin, right? That would be pretty amazing. You might be kind of perplexed by that. Now, one of the things we need to do, and this is an incredibly important principle which we need to draw from this to set for our interpretation of the book of Acts as we move forward, is we have to be very careful with how we interpret what's going on here because there are actually two errors that we can make when we interpret what's going on in the book of Acts. And they are both errors that limit the Spirit. What we don't want to do is limit the work of the Spirit. And there are actually two ways in which people read the book of Acts and will limit the work of the Spirit. And there are two ways in which we can limit the work of the Spirit. When we read it in our interpretation, one of the ways is to look at specific instances of the book of Acts and say, if that... Look at specific ways in which the Spirit manifests itself through the church. And we look at that and we say, if that isn't happening in your church, then the Spirit isn't alive in your church. If that specific way in which the Spirit is working in the early church, if that isn't happening in your church, well, then the Spirit is not alive in your church. Right? So, you know, Kevin, if you don't start speaking French pretty soon here, then I don't think we could, I don't think the Spirit's at work in this church. Of course, what's interesting, this is the whole point, is that as we go through the book of Acts, the Spirit manifests itself differently. Different contexts. In fact, there's some debate, there's a lot of debate about some of these things here, but, but it seems most scholars agree this is about the only place in the New Testament where it actually talks about them speaking other human languages. Of course, in 1 Corinthians, talking about 
speaking in other tongues, tongues that are not of human origin. That's another whole uh, ball of wax. But this seems to be the only place when they talk about that. So, so it, you, you know, it, where we limit the Spirit is, well, look, that's what, it, that's what the early church did. So if you're not, if we don't see the Spirit working that way in your church, then the Spirit must not be at work. Right, I mean, if, if, you're, if when you pray uh, and, and, for somebody, they don't miraculously get healed, well, then the Spirit must not be at work in your church. Right, so you can go through and say, you know, and what are you, you're actually limiting the Spirit. But of course, there's another error. You can limit the Spirit in another way. And that's where you say, well, look, you know, the, the book of Acts, it's just describing what happened in the early church. It's just describing what happened, but, but that was for then. That isn't for now. That stuff doesn't happen now. I mean, you know, maybe they spoke in foreign languages. Maybe they spoke in, you know, weird uh, tongues and languages before. But that doesn't happen now, right? You're limiting the spirit. And actually, both of these errors, I think, lack biblical support. So what we need to do, though, is say, okay, Let's look at what are the principles that emerge. What are the universal principles that emerge in the work of the Spirit in the church? What do we see consistently happening? It may manifest itself differently and in different ways and different, uh, different times, but, but what are the universal principles? And that's actually what I'm trying to draw out here. And what I think that we see is that when the Spirit is at work in a church, these three things happen. It connects with outsiders. It amazes and perplexes outsiders and it gathers outsiders in. may do it in a lot of different ways, but that's what happens. And so we need to ask ourselves as a church, do we amaze and perplex outsiders? Do we amaze and perplex outsiders with our worship? Are they amazed? And, and, you know, here, I don't want to get specific on what that might look like. Are they amazed and perplexed? Well, you know, are they amazed and perplexed? Uh, by how some of us uh, worship uh, with a great, uh, w- with great spirit and 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 maybe charisma, uh, you know. I mean, maybe some of us are very charismatic in our worship. I think some of you are charismatics waiting to happen. I do. I think some of you are charismatics waiting to happen, right? And, and some of you have even told me, you know, you've said, you know, I, I would, I would really, I'd actually really like to maybe raise my hands and sing out more, but I'm kind of nervous. I'm kind of inhibited. I'm. I'm kind of scared, right? You see, you see, the more the Spirit works, see, there's a freedom and there's an authenticity that amazes and perplexes people. The freedom to, to, to worship, to sing out, to raise your hands. You know, maybe you grew up in a charismatic environment where everybody raised their hands. So for you, freedom to worship is to not raise your hands, right? And there's the freedom to, it can manifest itself differently, manifest itself in a brokenness, in a quiet reverence before God. It's going to look different. It can look different. But but nonetheless, we have to ask this question. Does the way in which we worship, does it amaze and perplex people? Not just in our singing, not just in our worship, but again, remember, worship is a lifestyle. So the ways in which we live our lives, does it amaze and perplex The way in which we love others, right? Jesus summed up. Remember, again, what happens when the Spirit, what is the Spirit's purpose? It's to write the law of God on our hearts. What does Jesus say? If you can sum up the law, he sums up the law of this. 
love your neighbor as yourself, right? So, so are people amazed and perplexed by the way in which we love others? The sacrifices we are willing to make to love others. A lot of different ways in which that could happen. You know, we just uh, celebrated Veterans Day a few weeks ago. And there's been a great tradition in our church, a great, a great tradition in our church and a great tradition in the church in America where, where Christians are willing to sacrifice themselves, willing to give their lives to protect others in their country. Are people still amazed and perplexed by that? The Christians in America, do, do we still carry that? People are amazed and perplexed by our willingness to give our lives to keep and protect people in our country? Are they amazed and perplexed by that? Are people amazed and perplexed by our, our willingness to, to take risks to love people? You know, in, in the first couple centuries of the Christian church, the first couple centuries in the Roman Empire, these, there were times when plagues sweeped through, or swept through the Roman Empire and, of course, where it was the worst was in the cities, and people were dying all over the place. And, of course, what did most people who lived in the cities do? They fled. Like, get out of the cities. The cities are dangerous. You don't want to be in the cities. You might get hurt. You might get killed, right? And so they all fled. But you know what? The Christians were known for sticking around. Isn't that interesting? The Christians in the first couple of centuries, they were known. But in fact, there's one. I, I've read this before. I can't remember which emperor it was. He was actually annoyed because he didn't like Christians, but he had to acknowledge, look, these Christians, they just love everybody more than we do. Because our people, they hightail it out. When the, when the plague comes, they get out of there. But the Christians were willing to put themselves at risk, to put their own lives at risk, not just for their own people, but for other people as well. And, 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 and they were amazed and perplexed. Are people still amazed and perplexed by our own sacrificial love? Are people amazed and perplexed by who we're willing to welcome into our home? Amazed and perplexed by the, the broken, hurting people that, that we welcome into our home, even if it's a little bit risky? Are people amazed and perplexed by our, our willingness to welcome hurting and broken people into our church, even if it's a little bit risky? And this one's really complex. This one's really complex. But are, are, are we willing to maybe even let people into our country who are hurting and broken? Even if there's risk. You see, this is what Christians have done. This is when Christians thrive. You see, when the Spirit is at work in the church, people are amazed and perplexed. In fact, they think we're drunk. You notice that? They're like, you guys have been drinking? What is wrong with you? I mean, are people so amazed and perplexed with the, the, our willingness to love others and to sacrifice for others and to take risks for others? They're like, man, you, you must be drunk, man. You've been drinking? You've been smoking too much? Have you lost your mind? See, that, that, that's what's going on here, right? Spirit-led worship connects with outsiders amazes and perplexes outsiders, and finally gathers outsiders in. This whole uh, 
section here, the coming of Pentecost, actually what you see in here, multiple levels of resonance with the Old Testament. Of course, one level of resonance is that it's undoing the curse of Babel. That at, at Babel, what, what happened? Well, the, the, the people all thought, hey, we don't need God. We can do this on our own. We don't need God. Right? And God's like, that's not a good idea. Nope, that's not going to happen. So what does he do? He scatters them. He actually gives them all of these different languages so that they'll be confused and they won't be able to communicate. Here, what do we have happening? It's the reverse of Babel. Now the spirit is coming and working in them, and now the languages aren't confusing them. He's actually using their different languages to bring them together and to unite them to, to, to not cause a division anymore. You see, when the spirit comes and works, when, when spirit-led worship, what does it do? It gathers the outsiders. It doesn't scatter them. So again, this is a question we got to ask ourselves. Are we a church that gathers those in from the outside? Because it's easy for churches to, you know, oh, no, let's, let's keep the outsiders out, right? It's messy, right? They might come in and they might wear shorts when they should be wearing pants and they might talk when they should be singing. They might, who knows what they might do, you know? I mean, what if we let outsiders in? Oh, we can't do that. No, but, but, but when the Spirit is working in the church, Spirit-led worship gathers, it doesn't scatter. Spirit-led worship connects, amazes, perplexes, and gathers outsiders. Of course, why does the Spirit do this? Why does the Spirit do this? Well, because it's the very Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus says, I I, I can leave. He tells the disciples, I can leave because the Spirit's going to come, and the Spirit's going to come, and as the Spirit works in you, you become me. You become Jesus. You, the church, becomes the body of Christ. And so why, when the Spirit works in us, does our outsiders, does it connect with outsiders, amaze and perplex outsiders, and gather outsiders in? Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. It's exactly what Jesus did throughout his ministry. Jesus came, and he connected with outsiders. That when the religious establishment was trying to keep the outsiders out, Jesus was the one who was connecting with them. You see, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion. Because in every other worldview, it's like, you know, you really need to become more like God if you want to know God. You need to become more like God if you want to know God. But in Christianity, it's the opposite. God became human. He came to us. He, came, he, he became one of us. That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus is the ultimate missionary. God is the ultimate missionary who connects with his people by coming and becoming one of us. And so why, why do we seek to connect with outsiders? That's exactly what, what Jesus did. If you are here today and, and you don't know Jesus, what I want you to know is that he is reaching out to you. He wants to meet you right where you are. He wants to meet you right where you are with the things that you're interested in and the passions that you have and the brokenness that you have and the challenges that you have. Jesus wants to meet you right where you are. He wants to connect with you right where you are. Jesus connected with outsiders. He amazed and perplexed outsiders. Of course, we... We see Jesus doing all kinds of miracles and that sort of thing, and that that amazed and perplexed 
people, but what really amazed and perplexed people the most was his compassion and his love for the broken. My prayer for you is if you're not sure what you think about God or about Christianity, my prayer is that you would come to be amazed at the love that God has for you. My prayer is that you would be overwhelmed by what you see about who God is when you look at Jesus. And what you see about God when you look at Jesus is that you have a God who is willing to come and die on the cross for you. It's my heart, my prayer is that each and every one of us would continually be amazed at the compassion and the willingness that God had to come for us. Why, when the Spirit works, do we connect the maze? Because Jesus, that's what Jesus did, connected with outsiders, amazed outsiders, and finally he, he gathered them in. He gathered them in. As we close today, I want to give each and every one of you a challenge. And this is a challenge that I brought up with the community group that I lead on Friday nights, and I alluded to it at the Harvest Home Dinner last night. And and here's the the challenge that I want to give to you, and I'm I'm going to be pressing us with this over the next 20 weeks. And that is, who might the Spirit be leading you to reach out to? Who might the Spirit be leading you to connect with? To amaze with the way in which you love and care for them? Who might the Spirit be leading you to reach out and hope to gather in? And just like the Spirit, you know, just like the Spirit just, just led some to start speaking in Mesopotamian, you know, I don't know if that's the language they spoke, but start, just started speaking these different languages, led them to reach specific people who might God be leading you right now, whether it's a neighbor or a coworker or a people? Who might the Spirit of God be leading you to connect with, to seek to amaze in which way you love them, and to gather them in? Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, it all comes back to you. Because it's in you that we see who God really is. God, again, I pray that all of the misconceptions that we might have about God that keep us from you, Lord, we just pull them away. Misconceptions about religion. Lord, it's not about religion. It's about being in a relationship with the God who has come for us. God, I pray you you would pull apart all of those misconceptions that we might come to be amazed by you. And that in that, it would lead us to go out and to show this world who you really are. By the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name.